Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Yes, and thanks everyone for joining us today on this really important topic of managing mental health in the workplace during COVID lockdowns. We have exactly one hour for the presentation and there is quite a lot of material to cover. So we would appreciate you um, very much putting your questions in the question answer panel as um, Sarah's indicated. Um, and at the end of the session, we're hoping we'll have time for a couple of questions. If we don't um, answer your question and you still would like us to answer it, please feel free to email Jenny or I um, and our contact details are at the end of the session. Before we start, uh, we'd like to acknowledge that we're all meeting um, from different parts of Australia on traditional lands of various Aboriginal peoples from various Aboriginal nations. And we pay our respects to elders, both past, present and future. So let's have a look at the agenda that we're going to be speaking to today. Um, so there are five areas really that we're gonna cover and then the question and answers at the end. Um, the first is why is the topic important? And it is a very important one at the moment. It is indeed coming more and more important as we're hearing of more and more health um, issues, mental health issues in the workplace. The second is how can employers identify workers who may need help? Um, that's obviously a very challenging task for um, people that aren't necessarily trained in, in that skill. The third area is what is your legal obligations as an employer in relation to mental health in the workplace? So Jenny's going to take you through that with setting the legal framework for your obligations. And then we're going to address how employers can manage mental health um, in the workplace. And we're going to provide a practical example there of a question that was recently asked of us by one of our corporate clients who had a very unwell um, uh, employee or worker. And then the fifth area is how employers can maintain a positive workplace culture during lockdown. And as I said, then if we've got some time for some questions and answers, we will answer them. But let's um, set the context for the presentation. I think the images on the screen um, really represent what we're living with currently. Our screens are more populated than our streets. Um, and our interactions with our work colleagues are no longer face-to-face, uh, -face, but they're by Zoom or by Teams. Um, I think the initial transition to working from home was reasonably successful. Employers were interacting with their workers initially to see whether um, they're able to work successfully from home. So asking questions about whether they were um, set up ergonomically, whether the internet was working well, whether they had printing facilities, those sort of very practical questions. But a survey came out at the beginning of September that we were very concerned about because it showed that of the employees or workers that were surveyed, 69% had not been contacted or um, approached by their employer for the employer to assess the mental health and well-being of those employees. So that was very concerning to us um, that there's not those conversations happening as um, commonly as they should be happening. And we're going to go through and uh, um, give some guidance about how best to have those conversations. For a lot of people working at home initially, um, it was very attractive. You know, we thought it was great being uh, able to have some flexibility, perhaps spend some more time with our loved ones, perhaps even stay in casual clothes just all day. It was comfy and, and um, comfortable. Um, but what we're hearing now, anecdotally, through clients directly and through psychologists that we often work very closely with um, and off, um, through reports of um, organisations that deal with mental health um, is that mental health issues are being very much exacerbated this time round. Where there were financial pressures bubbling away, they've become really quite realised with potentially some people's partners um, losing their jobs. Um, where there's uh, relationship pressures that you can escape from um, by going to work, they're being exacerbated and we're hearing about domestic violence increases. Um, people are very much struggling with trying to work and homeschool. I mean, that's a very difficult juggling act and puts a lot of pressure on people. We can't do things that we ordinarily would do to relieve our stress. We can't socialise. We can't exercise in the way that we once did, although there's some freeing up of that that was just been advised of. But there, importantly, seems to be no end to the workday. There's this blurring between home and work that does cause 
um, people to feel very anxious. That together with the fact that a lot of people are concerned about the ongoing viability of their um, workplace. Um, will my workplace survive all of this? And of course, there's the ever-present anxiety that we all feel about what is the possibility of me actually contracting this disease, uh, this virus, and what about my loved ones um, and my those that are more vulnerable that are dear to me? So we do have all of these stresses that we all recognise are present. And for some of us, they're impacting our mental health quite significantly. So all this means for employers is that you need to be more proactive um, than reactive um, in terms of looking after the mental health of our, your employers. So Jen will talk about um, how best to do that in a sensitive and effective manner. But before I turn to Jen, there's just a few things that I wanted to say. Um, and that is, um, we need to look at some statistics to give some flesh around all of this. Um, we know from previous years of research that the Australian economy does lose $12 million, sorry, billion dollars, $12 billion per year in reduced productivity and sickness from people that are absent from the workplace due to mental health. Um, one in five Australians are reporting that they feel high levels of distress resulting the pandemic that's a figure that was released on the 20th of October August we think that figure is probably higher because it's across Australia and there are obviously pockets of Australia that are more profoundly affected at the moment by lockdowns and the mental health impact of those lockdowns so I would imagine that in New South Wales along the coast and certain um, areas in in Melbourne around the CBD those figures are indeed much higher John Brogdon who's the chair of um, Lifeline has said that they're getting um, calls of about a thousand a week at the moment which is very high and you'll see that figure there that the four busiest days in Lifeline's history of 57 years uh, occurred in August. And there's that figure that I mentioned that was really concerning to us that the 69% of employees have not been surveyed or approached by employers um, to ascertain their employees or workers' mental health. So that's a statistic that we really want um, and consider needs addressing. And we're going to talk about how best to do that. So over to you, Jen, to start talking about that. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Okay, so look, against that background, how can employers identify workers in your um, teams who might need help from a mental health perspective? Look, I think it's important to appreciate from the beginning that that's not always easy. Not always easy to identify um, employees who are struggling. Um, you might find that some staff members play their cards really close to their chest and don't give a lot of away in terms of how they're travelling. Uh, and that makes it particularly tricky, I think, uh, to identify people who might need help. Um, on the other extreme, you might have staff members <clears throat> who are quite outwardly upset, and that can be equally confronting in some ways if you've got people who are upset and teary, almost hysterical, crying and sobbing um, to you on a regular basis. Or perhaps you might observe some staff members who are becoming quite um, non-responsive or reclusive in their engagement. And that sometimes can be another sign that people aren't doing so well. But like me, I suspect that most people in the audience this morning are not trained medical professionals. I often say to my clients, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a doctor, uh, I don't have that particular training. And, and so it is important not to pretend that you've got those medical skills if you, if you simply don't have them. Um, so that's important to understand. But having said that, that doesn't mean that there aren't little things that you can do with your staff, with your teams, um, to try and at least get a little bit of information, a little bit of insight into how they're going from a mental health point of view. So... Um, as I say, some, it's difficult to tell between different employees how people are travelling, um, but you know, some employees might be more at risk than others just due to some information that you already have available. So if you are on notice, you already know about um, a particular employee in your team who has a pre-existing mental health condition, for example, 
you know, that might be um, a, a point in which you can identify those people as somebody who might have existing vulnerabilities at this time when there are all those pressures that Emma's alluded to, and you can reach out to those people. So that's a really sort of simple starting point, if you like, just to reach out to those people and see how they're travelling, especially if, as, you, as, I, as I say, they, they are people who you already know have some existing um, vulnerabilities in that area. Um, also important to be aware of changes in circumstances that are impacting people. So as Emma explained, there are so many different um, dynamics impacting people in their home environment, whether it's homeschooling or losses of jobs and income within the family um, and all sorts of situations uh, causing extra stress on top of what people already have in terms of stress that arise from the work, work that they do. So a, recent, a good example of that is I had a client uh, who had an employee who was directed to work from home uh, during the pandemic, which was all um, reasonable and, and was going fine at the beginning. But at one point in time, that employee reached out to one of the owners of the business and confided in that director that uh, she was um, experiencing some significant domestic violence in her family home. And now that she was directed to work from home and was home all of the time, that domestic violence was exacerbated and was becoming quite unbearable. So in that circumstance, that employer actually permitted the employee to go back and work in the office environment so that they could be safe um, from safer from that domestic violence situation. And you know that it's just an interesting example that I wanted to raise because it just shows that very various types of different stresses and changes that are impacting people at this time. So you need to be um, open and um, aware of those sorts of changing circumstances and prepared to listen to people when they raise them. So um, in that context, there are, are a bunch of um, things that you can look out for, if you like, in terms of trying to figure out who in your team might need some extra support at this time. And look, the, this slide and the next couple of slides that I'm going to take you through all come from the Are You OK Day website. Some of you might remember it was Are You OK Day um, just recently, a week or, or two weeks ago now, I think. And they have on their website some really fantastic resources um, for workplace settings. And so I really encourage you to get on their website and have a look at them. But this is one of them. So from their website, they have this insight around, look, how can you tell from your observations who might need help? So if um, in the last couple of weeks you see in one of your team members any two of these changes in behaviour, then that should be setting off some red flags for you, if you like. So, for example, changes in people's physical appearance. So people who might look really tired and really run down um, or might seem fidgety or more nervous than they would normally be. Those sorts of physical changes you should be keeping a lookout for as something that's signalling uh, that they're not doing too well. Um, changes in people's mood is another area. So if people are irritable or snappy in a way that they're not normally, or they're perhaps um, reacting in a way more emotional way than the situation warrants, or are quickly getting angry and are not people who you would normally see get angry. Again, those are just good little signs for you to think, look, something might not be quite right there. Changes in people's behaviour as well. So if people are withdrawn, as I said, becoming reclusive or non-responsive, um, you need to keep an eye out for that. Um, uh, if people are finding it difficult to concentrate or really distracted, that's another signal that people might not be travelling well from a men mental health perspective. And changes in the way that people express their thoughts um, is, a, is another one to keep an eye out for. So if people are really down on themselves and saying things like, oh, look, this is terrible, this is never going to get any better, or perhaps, you know, I knew this would happen, they've really got it in for me, those sorts of negative ways of speaking about situations is another um, sign. So if you've got a couple of those in combination, that I think would be enough for you to think, okay, look, I'm going to reach out to that particular staff member because I think they might need some extra support and I want to have a conversation with them. Now, in terms of having those conversations, <clears throat> again, these are resources from the RUAK Day website. Be ready, be prepared and pick your moment. They're just simple tips, but they're so important. So be ready means basically you need to make sure that you yourself are actually in a good headspace to have a conversation with another person 
about their mental health. So you need to be ready to listen. You need to have the time um, uh, as is needed. So you, you need to not be on a um, time pressured situation. It can't be a conversation that you have with someone when you've got to run away at a particular time because you, know, you can't always predict how long these conversations will go for. You've got to be prepared, obviously. You know, you've got to realise that it's okay that you may not have all of the answers for that particular person. Um, I mean, one of the most important things is, is just being prepared and able to listen um, and, and um, also be prepared for the prospect that somebody might actually get um, upset during those conversations. You know, as I said before, that can be quite confronting to be faced with somebody who's quite hysterical, really sobbing, but that's something if you're going to reach out to somebody who may not be travelling well, you've got to be prepared for. And obviously pick your moment. You know, you've got to pick, think about what's the best time of the day, when have you got the most time, um, and make sure that that's a good moment for you, but also a good moment for the staff member. How do you ask the question? Um, again, are you okay day uh, resources? Um, have some great tips and suggestions around this. And open questions are really the key. So you want to be asking, you know, open questions just like how are you going is a simple one, obviously. Or I've noticed that you seem really tired lately. You know, how are you travelling? Um, just an open question that allows the person to then explain from their point of view what's going on. Um, and then from there, really the most important thing, as you could imagine, is just the ability to listen. That I would say is probably the single most important skill um, if you're going to reach out to somebody and speak about their health and well-being. Um, so listening, take, make it clear that you take what they're saying seriously. Um, don't interrupt them. Make sure they have time to get their thoughts out, um, even if that takes them a little bit of time. Um, and the other aspect of it is to, when you're closing out the conversation, when it's coming to an end, I think the suggestion is that it's really important to have something that you can encourage by way of an action point. So talk to the person about, well, what do you want to have happen after this? What's the first thing we can do as a next step coming from this conversation? Um, so it's both that aspect of listening, but then also having some action point. And then checking in is another important aspect. You don't just have this conversation, walk away and, and never raise it again. You know, you've got to circle back to the staff member in a week or a few days time and regularly touch base. So some do's and don'ts around this. <clears throat> so encouraging things to say, you're not alone. That's a perfectly legitimate comment to make and is very supportive. How can I help you? How can I help out? Those are good comments to make. Uh, don't say, interestingly, I think the, the resources say that you don't say, I know what you're going through. And I think some people might be surprised that that's the suggestion because, you know, people might think, well, this individual might be assisted to know that I've been through something similar to what they are now going through. Um, and that on one level makes sense, but I think the idea behind these conversations is to remember that the conversation is about the other person. It's not about you. It's not about your experience, even if it's similar. So uh, try and hold back from making comments of that nature. And obviously, you know, comments like look on the bright side or she'll be right or um, you'll get over it or those sort of dismissive comments are not helpful. So steer clear of those. <clears throat> so look, as I say, those are just some of the um, resources um, from the Are You OK Day website. We've got some uh, other resources included on the slides um, towards the end that we'll point you towards, but definitely um, hop on the website for Are You OK Days. There's great stuff there. All right. So... Now that we've talked about some tips in terms of getting information from your team about how they're traveling from a mental health point of view, we wanted to take you through your legal obligations. So we want you to make sure that following this webinar, you've got a broad understanding of what that legal framework is that comes into play when we're talking about people's mental health. So look, it won't come as any surprise to anyone to be told that the starting point for the legal framework is the work health and safety legislation. Um, and the purpose of the work health and safety regime, obviously, is to make sure that people have a safe place to work. And when we talk about a safe place to work, we're not just talking about a physically safe place to work, but we're also talking about a psychologically safe place to work. And that's the focus for today. 
And that psychologically safe place to work uh, applies and the requirements around that apply just as much at the office as they do now that a lot of people are working in remote environments at their home. So the primary duty of care under the work health and safety legislation is that business have, businesses have to ensure as far as they reasonably practically can, the health and safety of all the workers that they engage. And it's, that's the primary duty. It's deliberately drafted really broadly in the legislation. It's the overarching duty. And it's the duty that the, if, if, the, if the regulators of the legislation are prosecuting for offences under this legislation, this duty is almost always pleaded as a breach if it's the as the primary duty of care. So uh, I guess what you need to be turning your mind to um, as a starting point is what is your business doing to discharge this primary duty of care? What are you doing to ensure as far as you reasonably practically can the psychological safety of your workers? And remember, um, we'll come to some details around this in a minute, but one point I wanted to highlight is to remember it's not just psychological safety arising from the sort of combination of strange factors that are impacting our workplaces at the moment, as Emma alluded to, um, the financial strains, the pressure of being isolated from our colleagues away from the workplace, homeschooling and all those extra stresses and strains that a lot of workers are experiencing. But do remember that the traditional um, <clears throat> stresses on people's psychological health around, for example, bullying behaviours at work or harassment at work, they all are still real issues in a workplace setting. Even if people are working from home, people can be bullied and harassed electronically um, through emails, through virtual meetings, through, through telephone calls. There are lots of modes where those sorts of inappropriate workplace behaviours can still exist. And I think it's easy to forget that at the moment. So setting, reminding people around the expectations of positive workplace behaviours is really important and reminding people about the policies that you've got in place at your business, um, about if you've got an anti-bullying policy, remind people about it. If you've got an anti-harassment policy, keep reminding people that those are still the expectations of the business, even in these strange working environments. Okay, so the focus of the work health and safety regime is first of all, to try and eliminate risks to health and safety, or if that's not possible, the idea is that a business has to do what it can to minimise the risks to health and safety. So it's when we talk about risks, it's important to remember as well that this is not, there's no requirement for there to be an actual injury um, for this legislation to apply. The whole purpose of the legislation is to eliminate the risk of an injury happening at all. <clears throat> so, you know, you need to be turning your mind to well, what are the risks to people's health and safety in this current climate? And you, might, you need to go actually go through a process of identifying what those risks are. And one thing to remember as well, when you're going through that process of identifying what the risks are, asking yourself that question, um, you have to remember that this legislation is designed not just to protect the ideal worker who um, always does the right thing and always looks after their uh, health and safety at work to the best of their ability. Indeed, the duty under the legislation is deliberately intended to pick up and ensure the protection of workers who are careless and who are perhaps <clears throat> somewhat inattentive or make mistakes at the workplace. So, in a way, the laws are actually designed to protect against human error and human imperfections in a workplace setting. And, you know, I think when we're talking about mental illness and mental health, uh, there are very many human imperfections in play, um, almost perhaps more so than when we're talking about physical uh, injuries and illnesses. So, you know, particularly I think in the Australian workplace culture or just in our society, Generally, I don't think as a society in this country we're particularly sophisticated or good at talking about our mental health, each other's mental health with each other. Um, there's still, unfortunately, a degree of stigma for a lot of people attached to mental illness and about talking to it with other people. Um, we just don't talk about it much. We're not particularly good at identifying um, those issues for each other, um, which is a shame, but I think that we have to face up to that being the reality.
And so you can't assume that your workers are necessarily going to be making the best decisions for their own mental health. You can't assume that they're sitting in their home office, in their homework environment, making good decisions about their mental health or making the best judgments about what's, what's good for them in this current climate. So that's the way you need to frame it. That's what the way you need to frame your thinking when you're working through your duty. Now, the duties under work health and safety laws, though, they're not absolute, okay? So there is this qualification around what's reasonably practicable. And so it doesn't mean that you have to do every single thing that you can possibly physically think of to ensure the health and safety of workers. But you do, I would say, need to go a fair way down the line um, of, of doing what you can. And so and the test is this idea of what is reasonably practicable to be done. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what that requires you to do as an employer or manager, basically a weighing up exercise. You've got to weigh up what are the risks on one hand, and then on the other hand, what are the things and the measures we can put in place to mitigate against that risk happening? And these are those things reasonably practicable in all of the circumstances. And helpfully, the court, not the court, rather the legislation gives us some guidance about what has to be considered in weighing all of that up. So there are five matters that are uh, you're directed towards by the legislation. Now, I'll, I'll let you read those five matters in your own time, but I did want to just highlight in particular point number five on this slide in terms of what is reasonably practicable. And that is the issue of cost. <clears throat> and this often comes up with clients. Um, and costs is a factor that you're perfectly entitled to take into account in deciding whether you need to put in place some measure to minimise risk. But <clears throat> I think you need to realise that there is a clear presumption in favour of safety ahead of costs when it comes to the work health and safety regime. And so really, it's only when you've got costs that are grossly disproportionate uh, to the risk that cost is going to be a, an adequate excuse for not taking certain steps. So just be really cautious, I guess, against um, using costs as a reason not to take certain steps. So look, that's the um, primary duty of care. And I should say there are a lot of separate duties under the work health and safety legislation. We simply don't have time today to go through each and every one of them, but that, that's the primary duty of care. The other duty I wanted to speak about briefly is what's called the due diligence duty. And this is a really important duty that falls on the shoulders of anyone who is an officer in your business. Because as an officer, that is an individual duty that people have to exercise due diligence to ensure that the company that they work for complies with all the other work health and safety duties that exist in the legislation. So it's a requirement that requires positive, proactive action by officers within an organisation. And it's a continuous duty that um, really never ceases to operate. And when we're talking about officers, obviously that picks up anyone who's a director of the business, but it also picks up senior, ma senior managers. Uh, so um, typically, I mean, it depends on the business, but typically CEOs, COOs, CFOs, um, senior general managers, people in that sort of high level managerial role will normally get picked up um, and be included in the definition of an officer. So <clears throat> what it really requires you to do if you're in one of those positions or if you're advising your business about compliance with this duty is to take proactive steps. So I think, you know, historically work health and safety legislation was very reactive in nature. If you go back 20 years, the work health and safety legislation was all about um, geared towards reacting to an incident. So there'd be an accident at a work site, the work health and safety legislation and the regulator would come in, investigate it, um, and the focus was on going forward, what can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? The legislation has been overhauled and it now is sort of flips that whole idea on the head. And the whole idea now is to be proactive. So to get things in place as much as you possibly can to avoid those incidents ever happening. And that's really the expectation around the due diligence duty. So you've got to be really interested in health and safety. If you're an officer, you've got to be inquisitive about it. 
You've got to have it sort of mainstreamed effectively as part of your regular decision-making considerations. It should be a regular agenda item at meetings. And you've got to really um, make sure that they're not just positive proactive steps that are being taken, but also that there's a process of checking, like auditing those, those steps to make sure they're working. Um, so it, it's quite an important role that officers now play. Okay, so as I said, that's really just the two, two duties under the work health and safety regime that I thought were the key ones that we ought to um, touch upon for this afternoon. <clears throat> the next thing I wanted to speak about was disability discrimination. Now, this is an area that comes up quite a lot when we're talking about mental health of workers at um, the workplace. And so when we're talking about disability discrimination, it's the Disability Discrimination Act federally, We've got any discrimination legislation in all the states and territories across the country. Now I've just mentioned there the Anti-Discrimination Act in New South Wales where I operate, but there's equivalent uh, pieces of legislation across all the states and territories. And of course, there's the Fair Work Act that also prohibits uh, adverse action based on the person's disability. So, in terms of understanding this aspect, there are two forms of discrimination. There's direct um, disability discrimination and indirect discrimination. So I'll just briefly explain how those two different types of discrimination work. So direct disability discrimination is probably something that you're all familiar with already, but it is quite simply when somebody is treated less favorably or when someone is treated adversely because of a disability that they have. And when you look at the definition of disability in the legislation, it's a quite broad definition. So it includes a disorder, an illness or a disease that affects a person's thought processes, their perceptions of reality, their emotions or judgment, or that results in disturbed behavior. So when you think about that definition, you can see quite readily how almost all varieties of um, mental illness could fall within that definition. So an example, direct discrimination, if you refuse to employ someone or if you indeed dismiss someone because, for example, they suffer from depression or anxiety, that would be a form of direct discrimination. Or even if you say refuse to promote somebody or consider somebody for promotion because they suffer from depression or anxiety, that's that direct less favourable treatment because of that disability. Now, we'll come in a moment to talking about inherent requirements and adjustments and the like, but that's just to illustrate the way direct discrimination operates. Now, indirect disability discrimination is uh, a little bit different and not always that easy or straightforward to identify. So indirect disability discrimination happens when a business imposes some sort of a policy perhaps across the business or a, a practice or conditional requirement. And even though that policy or condition might seem quite neutral and fair enough on the face of things, when you have a look at the way it actually operates in practice, people who have a disability are not able to comply with that requirement or condition because of their disability. And therefore that has the effect of disadvantaging them because of their disability. <clears throat> I'll come to an example to explain what I mean in a moment. So that's one form of indirect uh, disability discrimination. The other form is when there's some policy or requirement that an employer rolls out to its business, um, that people, certain people with a disability can't reasonably comply with, but they could comply with it if the employer put in place some reasonable adjustments that would allow that individual to be able to comply with that policy or requirement, but the employer failed to do that. That's another kind of indirect disability discrimination. So just a quick example um, up there on the slide. It would be, I think, um, indirect discrimination if, you know, if a business had a policy and a practice where it said all its workforce, look, as a business, our policy is that people have to start work by seven o'clock in the morning. Um, that might seem, you know, that on the face of it seems a very reasonable expectation. There are plenty of businesses out there where that is exactly the sort of requirement or policy that's in place um, for perfectly good operational reasons. Uh, but if, for example, you've got an employee who's because of their particular mental illness is on some medication 
that means they are just simply unable to be up and ready and alert and good to go for work by seven o'clock in the morning, then what perhaps for everyone else might seem a reasonable enough policy becomes something that the person can't comply with, not because they don't want to, but because of their disability. And that, that has the effect of disadvantaging them. So that's the way indirect dis disability discrimination, discrimination operates. Now I mentioned before reasonable adjustments and these, this is really often where we get a lot of questions from our clients because people will come to us and say, look, I've got this person, um, you know, we're um, concerned about them. They do have this particular mental illness. We're worried about whether they can fulfill the inherent requirements of a job. And the question the legislation asks is, well, can they do that if you put in place reasonable adjustments? And an adjustment, uh, in most cases, the legislation will uh, consider a, an adjustment to be reasonable um, unless making that adjustment, unless putting that in place is going to impose an unjustifiable hardship on the company. So there are sort of two concepts that need to be looked at. Is the adjustment a reasonable one? And even if it is, is it going to impose a hardship that's just too much for that particular business? And it's important to point out that the onus is very much on the employer to prove in any particular case that, that an adjustment is going to be too, too, too much of a hardship for them. <clears throat> so that, um, I just wanted to briefly mention this case that was quite recent um, case handed down by the Federal Court of Australia in 2019 involving Journey Lawyers, which is a very small um, private family law firm. And they had a solicitor who had um, suffered from depression and anxiety and had been away from the business for about six months. But after his um, absence from work, he'd been working with his doctors and was ready to come back to work. But a dispute arose about the adjustments that should be in place for his return to work. And there were a number of points that were in dispute in this case, but um, and I won't go through all of them now, but the one that's relevant is um, what was the proper adjustment for his rehabilitation into the workplace? He wanted to be able to come back to the workplace working five days a week, but five half days. So he'd work every day, but only for a fraction of a day, half a day. The company didn't regard that as a reasonable adjustment. Their proposal was that he worked three full days per week and have two days off. Um, and look, in the end, this occasion unfortunately went through to a hearing, <clears throat> but the court held from the firm's point of view that their proposed adjustment of three full days per week was in fact a reasonable adjustment. That was what their proposal was. And so really the court's focus was designed to investigate whether what the company what the firm were proposing was reasonable or not. And there was evidence um, that was put before the court to show that, you know, lawyers specialising in family law can work effectively part-time in the way that the company proposed, that is three full days. So they were satisfied, the court was satisfied that that was a reasonable proposal and a reasonable adjustment for the company to suggest. Then they had to investigate whether um, the solicitors proposed uh, five half days would have imposed a hardship, an unjustifiable hardship, which the company said it would have. And interestingly, the court agreed again with the firm on this front and said that five half days <clears throat> was not a reasonable um, adjustment. It was too much of a hardship. It was a very small law firm. Um, there was evidence that the overheads uh, that the, the small firm would have had to pay in that period would have um, been financially um, difficult for the for the firm and also the servicing of clients working fractions of days was said to be um, not appropriate. The court did note that it probably would have been a different result if they were talking about one of the big law firms um, with lots of resources or a big government department say, but for this particular firm, which was, as I say, very small, um, the proposed five half days was held to be unjustifiably hard. And so look, that I just wanted to mention that because it shows sort of the process you need to think about. You need to think about the adjustments first. And then the second question is, is the, is the cost of those adjustments unjustifiably hard? Um, just quickly on disability as well. Um, 
uh, it's really important for any adjustments um, to be flexible and adaptive. Justice Mortimer said that quite helpfully, I think, in the Watts case. And so, you know, adjustments that you have in place in the first few weeks, say, as a person with a mental illness returns to work, might be different to the adjustments that you have in place two months down the track or three or four months down the track. So, you know, you've got to be, I think this is really critical for employers to be flexible and adaptable about these adjustments, especially with mental illness. So, you know, adjusting the hours as the person improves, um, thinking about, well, can we pull back the supervision? You might have high levels of supervision in the beginning and then drop that back as they become more independent. You know, you slowly introduce more face-to-face -face meetings and interactions with clients and customers. Um, you slowly reintroduce people perhaps back to the sort of work that has tight deadlines and, and um, timeframes. Um, so yeah, really encourage employers to be flexible on that side of things. And just finally, to close out the employment, um, the framework of uh, issues that are relevant to um, mental illness is the employment contract. Um, two, two areas I just wanted to highlight here. Sometimes we have um, clients that come to us with um, employees who are particularly ill from a mental illness point of view and ask about, well, has this employee abandoned their employment? Um, look, an abandonment usually arises when there is quite a significant unexplained absence by the employee. And that does happen sometimes with mental illness, but there is a really strong onus in the case law on the employer to make adjustments that are reasonable. I'm oh, sorry, to make reasonable inquiries rather, to find, to find out what's happening with that employee, to try and locate them and to find out what's going on, why it is that they're absent. Um, and, and you can't be too quick to move. There needs to be a reasonable period of time that you um, try and identify where they are. But it does exist. Sometimes there will be an abandonment, um, which is basically a, a repudiation of the employment contract. So there are times when abandonment is uh, something you can call upon, but I would say to employers normally to use that pretty cautiously. And the same with frustration of the employment contract. It's pretty rare, it happens sometimes, but you've really got to have a significant um, event that fundamentally changes the employment contract. And so a, a significant um, psychological incapacity sometimes will happen that purely makes the performance of the contract impossible. Um, that can happen. Um, so these are sort of things that are available, if you like, in more extreme cases um, in terms of the way that the employment contract operates, but very much an area to exercise significant caution about. So look, I guess having set the legal framework, I just hand back to Emma, who's going to talk about how that's going to work in some more practical settings. Thanks, Jen. Yes, so look, applying that legal framework that Jen um, has taken you through, we're going to use a practical example of a question that was put to us by um, a corporate recently. And that question involved a very ill, or what um, the corporate was concerned about a particular employee who was exhibiting a sign of mental um, illness. So that um, employee in the case that the um, corporate was inquiring about concerned an EA um, who was attending Zoom meetings looking very dishevelled in one case came in her nightgown and then would go AWOL um, for many hours in the day. They didn't know where she was. She was working very regular hours from two and three in the morning. And they called the employee's husband and asked whether the employee was okay. And he said, no, she wasn't. She was very unwell. So that then um, formed a framework for us giving advice and, to, and, and giving some step-by-steps um, as to what the employer should do. So the first thing the employer should do with anyone who's suffering mental health and it's been exhibiting in the workplace but there's been no conversation about it is to have a very gentle, informal conversation with the employee of course, as we go through this, no one case is going to fit every situation, so you will have to adapt and change. But definitely approach the conversation with compassion and concern and without judgment. Um, obviously, the employer will be very concerned about the well-being of the employee, but equally they'll be concerned about how they're going to deliver the product, um, how they're going to service clients, and so they'll have more co commercial concerns um, as well as the concerns about the well-being. So gently suggest that the um, employer worker doesn't appear their normal self um, and perhaps 
if they say, oh, I don't know what you mean, you can give some examples, you know, arriving late, um, working irregular hours, those sort of things. Definitely avoid comments about physical looks, you know, the dishevelled um, comment that I made. Definitely avoid that. That is not um, appropriate to be putting to someone who um, is unwell. And say, look, as an employer, you're not qualified um, to opine on these things, that you're not med medically qualified. So you do need some guidance and direction um, from a medical advisor um, and ask whether they're seeing somebody. Are you seeing a GP or a psychologist? Um, and see what they say. Now, if they are seeing um, a psychologist or GP, that's fantastic and you'll immediately feel a sense of relief that they've been properly looked after, hopefully. Um, so you will then say, look, we're keen to work with you in conjunction with your medical advisors. Again, keep it very low key and suggest that perhaps you could just hop on a call with the GP or medical advisor and the employee um, to ascertain what you can do as an employer to accommodate their mental health, to make adjustments, to assist them perform the work um, without it adversely impacting their, their mental health. If the employee is not happy with you hopping on a call, then say, look, I'd like to write to the medical ad, um, advisor and get some guidance. And I'll, I'll definitely show you the correspondence before and make sure that you're happy with it. So be as transparent in that correspondence as you can be. And there will be times when employees will be resistant to that. Try and understand their resistance to your approaching the medical advisor and reassure them. A lot of the resistance will arise from the fact that the employer worker may be concerned that you're going to delve into things beyond the scope of the immediate inquiry, which is how can I assist them in the workplace? They may be concerned about you getting access to broader, broader issues. So assure them that it's for you to understand how best to support them and what systems can be in place to do so. Now, if they're not seeing someone um, and you really feel as though they should, that's the, obviously the more difficult conversation. So gently suggest that perhaps it's a good idea for them to seek some support. Um, acknowledge that the time is very stressful for many and perhaps acknowledge some of their individual circumstances. Perhaps you know that they're homeschooling young children or that their spouse has lost their job. So identify why you think it's stressful for them and that can alleviate some of their concerns that you're simply as an employer not understanding their situation. Again, keep Okay, sorry everybody, that uh, Emma is having some internet connections at her home, which has never happened before, so I really apologise for that. She's going to try to get back in, um, but in the meantime, I will uh, continue on where she was up to. So I think, look, Emma was pointing out that if you've got a staff member who hasn't got that um, support in place from a GP or psychologist, um, then yeah, just taking those gentle steps to suggest they do get somebody is, is, is really the first step. Um, and uh, it's a stressful time. You've got to be aware of that for people. Keep it low key, but open up that dialogue and that conversation with the staff member to see if you can, you know, in a consultative and cooperative way, encourage them to get the support from a medical professional that they need. And you can point out, and this is something that's changed quite recently, um, you know, for a number of years now um, through Medicare, there have been mental health plans that you can get a referral for from your general practitioner. Recently, and, and those have always been um, for, I think, 10 visits for the, across the, the term of that particular mental health plan. Though that has recently increased to 20 um, visits per mental health plan. And I think that's because directly in response to the stress that people are experiencing. And I know anecdotally that a lot of clients are finding it really hard to get in to um, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists at this time. I think the demand for those services has just really gone through the roof. Um, and so to be able to get uh, a mental health plan just simply through your GP is super helpful. So you can, you can tell people that that's the case and encourage them to talk to their GP as a starting point. And also you can have the conversation around, look, how can we just bet, how can we as your employer best support you? As I said before, in terms of having those open dialogues, open up the dialogue, ask the open questions and see what you can do to help. Hi, Emma, are you back with us? 
Yes, so sorry about that. Problem um, from working from home. So, and are you are you on the slide of if refuses to see so, uh, GP? I have. I just turned to that slide. Fantastic. So, uh, this is a situation which does arise from time to time, where um, and a worker employee will simply refuse to see somebody, um, or indeed they go AWOL and you can't contact them. The first thing to do is to check the contract to see the wording of the contract to see whether there's an express provision within it that allows you to direct them to see somebody or to get an independent medical assessment. Um, and um, most contracts will not provide that provision, but rest assured it is a lawful and reasonable direction for an employee to undertake an independent medical assessment if it's the case that it's reasonable to do so. Um, and that situation is where it's to confirm the incapacity of the worker or to make reasonable adjustments. Do be careful about not relying on medical um, certificates and saying, oh, look, they're not good enough. We really need an independent um, medical assessment. There has been some authority as recently as June to say that it wasn't reasonable to direct someone to an med independent medical assessment um, where there was medical certificates um, available um, to the employer. So just do be careful about um, addressing whether it's appropriate and reasonable to direct the independent medical assessment. One of the questions um, that is obviously asked um, regularly um, is when we're getting the medical advice, what do we actually ask the medical advisor for? So this is the next slide, thanks, Jen. Um, as Jen said, it's really important to understand what reasonable adjustments should be made. So never make those adjustments yourself. If you think the person's now capable of increased hours or days or conditions, consult with a medical advisor, get it in writing and get that confirmed. And discuss with the medical advisor what's reasonable and what isn't, what is um, possible in terms of your own, your own business, but always rely on the medical advice. Sometimes unjustifiable hardship um, as a reason for not implementing something is difficult to discharge. Um, and there's an RAAF case involving the federal government where the, the courts found that the um, federal government should have um, provided for food and insulin um, stations for an employee and that that didn't um, give rise to a successful argument by the RAF, uh, sorry, RAAF um, that um, it was too difficult or it was unjustifiably hard. So do be careful of that argument too um, and have a good documentary trail. But ultimately the employee does has to have to perform the inherent requirements of the job. Um, and so there will be a point where you say, look, you know, we've supported you as best we can within our business constraints. Um, but at that point, you need to go through quite a few steps before you can reach there. And the other question that we're asked very regularly is can I direct people to take personal and annual leave? Um, you need to be very careful, proceed with extreme caution um, to direct anyone to take um, annual leave or personal leave if they're exhibiting mental health issues. We've set out there, and you can read those in your own time, there's easy ability to direct someone to take annual leave under the Fair Work Act, but it's in very limited circumstances that don't address the circumstance here. And equally with personal leave, there's no ability to direct in any circumstances. And um, we think that there is generally no power to do that. So, um, and we wouldn't advise people to direct um, employers to take either of those forms of leave where they're exhibiting ill health. So abandonment of employment, Jen um, has talked about that. Um, be very careful, um, as Jen said, you can't just terminate, take time, document, set out, you know, the fact that you're trying to contact them, try by various means, and then send one final letter saying, look, you are thinking about doing, um, affecting a termination, please provide any reasons for um, not doing so. So um, need to be very careful. Now, the last um, section of the presentation, we'd just like to focus on what um, steps employers can take. Um, this will just take one or two minutes and then we'll have time for one, one or two questions. So essentially what we say you should do um, 
is set up a communication structure that's effective, that talks about, that identifies the frequency, the type and the content of communications that you're going to have with your employees to identify, which will help you as the employer identify their mental health issues. In setting up that communication structure, you may have to take into account um, individual circumstances. You definitely need to take into account pre-existing mental health issues that a worker may have. And you may consider their other responsibilities, for example, working at home um, with young children who are homeschooling. You'll also appoint a particular contact person who's going to contact them regularly. And I'll talk about the importance of that being a manager in a moment. Provide access and information to mental health support services. And we've got some great links that we'll provide you at the end. Support work-life balance. Ensure staff are having regular breaks. Try and set clear milestones for them. Start day times of work and days of work. So not feeling as though their days are endless. Help them set the parameters of what they should be doing. So here in the next slide, we've just set out in an example of a communication strategy that you could set up. Um, why we set it into three levels, manager, peer-to-peer -peer and EAP, is that obviously um, employees will feel um, differently about approaching different um, avenues. So they may not feel comfortable approaching a, a manager, but may feel more comfortable about approaching a peer, a peer. And indeed, they may really love the anonymity of approaching an EAP provider. But what we are saying, and very um, clearly, is that to discharge your work health and safety obligations, managers do need to engage. They can't just pass over and abrogate responsibility to peers. They do need to engage with their, their employees to see how they're going. Now, to that end, managers may need training. Lots of managers um, may be great people person, people people really interact well, that are able, able to elicit conversations and information. Others will not have the same skill base. So what steps can you take immediately? Um, these are things that we've done in our own workplace. Have regular team meetings. Undertake um, surveys regularly with staff, perhaps not weekly, but regularly. We have our HR person contact our staff uh, as well as the managers. And do lots of virtual social activities, morning tea. For Are You OK Day, we had our morning tea arrive um, in our homes and then we met with very small groups of colleagues so that it was conducive to conversation. We've also had um, a bingo night and there's been an art um, night too and with food being delivered. So they were great um, bonding experiences. So you can always create things like that. So just um, finally, here's the resource pages that we think would be useful for you to have a look at. Um, and perhaps be circumspect about um, forwarding these to your um, employers because you don't want to overwhelm them. Perhaps just choose one or two key um, sources that you think are particularly useful. So um, I note the time. It is um, just a little over 12.30. Jen, perhaps we've got time for just one question. Yeah, there are a couple of great questions, but I thought um, we should probably address uh, in the, the chat box Belinda Bennington has raised with us a serious matter. Unfortunately, they at their workplace had a worker who um, attempted suicide and was hospitalised as a result of that, apparently only to be let out by the hospital the next day and return to work only to try again in the aftermath of being released from hospital. Now, Belinda mentioned that they sent that worker to the doctor for a, for a clearance, which I think is a perfectly legitimate step to take. But, um, you know, in terms of what we've been speaking about in this webinar, I mean, if you think about the work health and safety um, duties that you've got and weighing up the risks versus the measures to take, you know, with mental illness, it's, it's true that suicidal ideations and, and attempted suicide is a potential risk mm. that unfortunately is a real um, risk and a reality to be guarding against as people's mental health deteriorates in these times. So, um, you've got, I think, a fair amount of scope to take some significant steps to mitigate against that risk. And I guess a, a significant responsibility to take some steps to mitigate against that risk. Um, and the very, the very beginning of that would be to make sure you've got the medical support in place through the GP and potentially even more for somebody like that. So I think what you've done there is totally appropriate. And also, I mean, in terms of the directions that Emma was speaking about, um, 
in that circumstance, there'd be, I don't think, any doubt that it'd be a reasonable lawful direction to get people um, looked at by a medical professional so that you can make informed decisions mm. about the worker. Um, but I'm really sorry to hear that, Belinda. That's an incredibly stressful situation to find yourself in for any business. Um, and I, I fear that you're not alone and that probably other businesses out there going through a similar experience. Um, I think that's right, Jen. I think you also need to be very mindful about the impact that the knowledge of um, that employee's state, severe state of illness will have on colleagues um, and workmates. So you probably need to really touch base with those colleagues and say, how are they faring? Rest assured that we're supporting this employee in the way these ways. Um, you've got to be very careful about breaching confidentiality, of course, but you want to assure the staff that have knowledge that you are putting in place some things to um, support the employee, but how are you faring and why, how they are going, because it would obviously affect other people's mental health had they had knowledge of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of um, questions coming through, but look, we're out of time. Um, and I think um, we really appreciate all those positive comments. Thank you very much. And um, if you do need to um, have any questions, ask, please, you have our contact details. At the end, I think there's one more slide, Jen, with our contact details. Um, and um, please feel free to contact Jenny or I. Yes, well, look, please just reach out if you've got some questions. Apologies, we haven't been able to get to them all, but we're happy to chat afterwards. Great, all right. Thanks a lot for that, Emma and Jenny. I can see from the chat that um, people have found this very, very valuable, this presentation. Um, I will reiterate that later today, and please always check your spam. We will send an email. Yes, with the slides as a PDF, the P recording and um, podcast, and also all those contact details um, that um, Jenny just mentioned. So thank you, everyone. I'm sorry that we, we've gone over time. There was a lot to cover. Um, and I'd also like to thank Jane Kewen from Harmers as well for organising this and hopefully um, a few more to come. All right. Thank you, ladies. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks all. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone.